everyone. It's Thursday at 5 p.m. and you are at the bar with Jennifer Braceros and Julie Gumlock, who is sitting in today for Inez Stepman. Hi, Julie. Hey there. Thank you so much for doing this and for co-hosting with me today. <laughs> this is fun. Yeah, thanks. This is our seventh virtual happy hour. Um, we usually say it's a conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. But today, I think it would be more accurate to say we're talking about issues at the intersection of law, science, and culture. And of course, I can't think about science without taking a throwback to the 80s um, and thinking about this. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? Do you remember that movie? Are you kidding? That I'm like a, a queen '80s girl. Of course, I remember that. Well, I think you're significantly younger than me, but <laughs> all of those uh, what was it? Anthony Michael Hall, Michael Anthony Hall. Yeah, yeah. Were a staple of my existence. Absolutely. The John Hughes movies. But yeah, we are talking about weird science today, good science, bad science, um, and how it impacts public policy and, and all of our lives. So um, really, there's no better person to join us for this conversation than Julie, who is the director of IWF's Center for Progress and Innovation. And she is also the author of the book, From Cupcakes to Chemicals, how the culture of alarmism makes us afraid of everything and how to fight back. Julie also hosts the Bespoke Parenting Hour, a podcast that explores parenting issues and how they sometimes intersect with science and culture and sometimes even politics. So thank you for being here, Julie. Thank you. What a bio. I'm so tired. <laughs> I know it's exhausting. You're so busy. I never hear that read out. So that was like, gosh, I do a lot. You do. Uh, you do a lot. <laughs> So today at our virtual happy hour, I am drinking an Arnold Palmer, which is one of my favorite summer drinks, iced tea and lemonade with a splash of vodka. Nice. It's very refreshing on this summer day. How about you? I am drinking a gin and tonic. I'm sticking with the traditions with, with you know, the, the, good old, the good old gin and tonic there. Yes. Also a perfect summer drink. Mm. So... As you know, when it comes to policymaking and even determining liability in court, we're constantly being told to trust the science, trust the experts. Um, but as you've written quite a bit about, not all experts are neutral and not all scientific studies are reliable. And you talk about, um, in your book, you talk about how we live in a culture of alarmism that's not only bad for our mental health, but also ultimately harms consumers. And I'm just wondering if you could start off today by giving us some examples of how twisted science can kind of distort the choices we make in our everyday lives. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this before we came on and I I looked, I had to remember, when did I write this book? And um, I wrote it in 2013 and at the time I had a two and a half year old. and so my life was different. My kids are, you know, they're all in middle school or older now. And so life is a lot different. But at that time, I was really 
sort of dealing with the alarmist information that's geared towards new moms, pregnant women, and women of, of very young children. And at that time, in 2013, there was a lot of sort of chatter about GMOs, about chemical preservatives to, to sort of keep food fresh or from spoiling or cosmetics from going bad or lotions, um, you know, pesticides in modern farming. This was all sort of a really big issue, um, you know, about 10 years ago now. Um, and it's it's changed a little bit. Those issues aren't quite so front and center, but now these, but, but the politicization of, of science is still very much with us. And I think even more so now that we're coming out of COVID and we're looking back at how science was used and how people were really manipulated and really intimidated from asking questions or, I mean, just simply asking questions was a big no-no on some subjects. And so um, while my book, the, the topics haven't changed, the problems are still there. Um, activist scientists, predatory journals, really bad studies that are being used, not just in the courts, uh, but being used in media stories about products, celebrities and mommy bloggers and people right. who promote these kinds of things that, that don't make a lot of sense. So we still have this problem that hasn't been solved. Some of the issues have changed a bit. And you know, it's, it's really hard for consumers to know what to think because even just getting ready to talk to you today, I quickly just Googled the term studies show to see what would come up on, you know, in, in the top news story. Yeah. And one of the first things I got was studies show that coffee is fantastic for you. Oh. And all of the reasons why coffee is good for you, which is fine, except that if you dig a little further, you'll find all of these studies showing that it's going to kill or if you, so or if you give it a week, start through all that. Yeah, or if you just give it a week, right? Like one week, <laughs> one week coffee is good for you. The next week, you're gonna drop dead if you have a cup of coffee. I mean, and I'm not kidding you. I, I that sounds like I'm being, I'm exaggerating. I'm not. There are headlines that literally say even like one tablespoon of coffee is harmful, and then the next week, but it it helps with your heart. You know, I mean. The, it's just these wild swings, which leaves consumers and particularly consumer, you know, I write about this stuff, but I do not have a medical degree. I don't have a science degree. And it leaves people, I am a, I'm the perfect demographic of people who are, what is, is, are confused. Now I'm paid to look at this stuff. That's my job. Right. So I actually am, I really find, I, you know, I'm quick, I quickly am able to sort through what makes sense and what doesn't, but the, a lot of people don't have that time. They've got other jobs, they have other things to do. And so it, it leaves people scared, uncertain, and the wild swings we, we see, even from public health, means that at some point people tune it out. They just don't want right. to hear it, uh, about it anymore, which that's a problem as well. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you talk about people, you know, not having time to dig through the studies or just being confused by what they hear in the media. But, you know, I'm a lawyer. And so even in court, um, when you know you have these cases where people are suing, claiming that different products cause them injury or cancer or whatever, and you have a jury that are made up of lay people, um, even when you have experts trying to explain the scientific data and you have lawyers trying to summarize that testimony for the juries, for the members of the jury, it can be very, very confusing and. You know, if you ever work on some of these cases, you know, I think even the lawyers don't understand half the time yes. the evidence that they're putting on. Um, but we'll talk about that a little bit more with our guest. 
Um, and I'm going to bring him in now. Um, he was going to help us sort of parse some of the scientific claims, figure out how individuals can parse the scientific claims. And he's going to tell us a little bit about how courts should handle data and scientific testimony. Um, so let's welcome Joseph Anadi from um, the Center for Truth and Science. Let me bring him up with us now. Hi, Joe. Good afternoon. How are nice you? Good to be with you. Good to have you here. Um, so you're the president of the Center for Truth and Science. And I'm wondering if you could just start off by telling everybody a little bit about your group and why you were founded and, and what you guys hope to accomplish. Sure. Uh, we are relentless pursuers of the truth. That's, that's what we do. We, we try to find the scientific truths, on, particularly focusing on those issues at the intersection of science, justice, and the economy. And we define justice as both the civil justice system, litigation, and the regulatory system. And the two are very closely intertwined. Um, they have kind of a symbiotic, maybe an incestuous relationship uh, at, at times. Uh, so we, we uh, commission independent, objective, and unbiased research. Um, it's actually uh, not original research, our, our first studies, but it is what we call and what scientific community calls systematic analysis of existing research on these issues to determine the veracity of the, of the entire body of work. Because one of the big problems uh, we face in the, in, uh, at this intersection where these issues uh, don't always uh, defer to each other uh, to the right of way, they collide a lot of times, is that there, um, uh, there are a, a collision course um, and so we try to, you know, to, to get to the truth so that the decision makers, whether they're regulators, whether they're judges, um, e even jury members, have access to the most accurate, sound, unbiased scientific evidence to, to, to base their decisions. Well, you put out this little um, a short video sort of explaining, I think, what, what your goals are. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to play a little clip of it and then we could talk sure. about that. Science matters. It matters to our families, our jobs, and our communities. But bad science matters too. Unchallenged work that does not hold up to broadly held scientific standards is creating a harmful, tangled mess in America. Poorly designed studies create clickbait headlines designed to fuel panic. Cherry-picked data create bad faith lawsuits, costing communities thousands of well-paying jobs. And analysis done in secret creates miles of red tape, making household items more expensive and leaving essential workers with less effective tools to do their jobs. This tangled mess has real consequences, and families and businesses are caught in the middle. So you talk in that video about bad science, right? So... You know, there. Well, how would you define bad science? There's a variety of problems in in the in the science that we use to make these decisions. The bad science. Some science is incomplete. Um, it's just not that well done. Julie, you referred to that. There's just some bad studies out there. The methodology's wrong. Um, the 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 way the science itself was conducted is wrong. Um, there are, are scientific studies that are uh, agenda driven, where you have 
you have the result in your mind and you're going to seek the scientific evidence to verify your own pre preordained result. It's kind of the believing is seeing uh, uh, phenomena instead of looking at the facts and seeing something and turning that into a belief. You believe something and then you're going to go out and try to see some, something that, that supports that. Um, there's cherry picked science, evidence that um, is taken out of a larger study to make a certain uh, uh, case in a regulatory or legal debate. Um, there are really, the, one of the big problems we face is the inconsistent standards in the way science is used in a courtroom. Jennifer, as I'm sure you know, the judge has, you know, he controls, he or she controls the, the evidence that gets admitted in that courtroom. And we have wildly divergent rulings based on the types of evidence that are admitted or not admitted. Right. I just want to take it back one step before we talk about what it, it, it sort of laid the groundwork of what bad science can be as opposed to good science. But I think a lot of people don't even really know what science is. So we often see things like this. Um, science is real, we're told. We have to trust the experts. And it seems to me that uh, people who put these signs in their yards and these bumper stickers on their car are really thinking of science um, as less of a, a process or a method and more of a dogma, like a religion, which it really isn't. If you look at the definition of science, you will see that science is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of physical, of the physical and natural world through observation and experiments. So it's a process. Um, there are scientific studies that could be well done or scientific studies that are poorly done, but science isn't a dogma. And I think that's something that really gets lost in our discussions these days. I, I totally agree with you. And I think having gone through all of us the last uh, 18 months of COVID and hearing how many times follow the science, um, we, we've either grown immune to it or distrustful of it because it, the, the, it, it's all too tempting for the folks who are up there saying that. What they mean is follow my science. That's right. <laughs> They're not talking about follow the science. They're talking about follow my science. And right, we're getting if you're following through. the science, you would accept that different studies might say different things, that the scientific consensus might evolve over time as we learn more. Um, you wouldn't just dogmatically say, this is the rule and it's based on science. Ab absolutely things evolve. I mean, ultimately, I think you can get to um, on some issues, sound or settled or unanimously agreed upon science. Lead, for instance. Mm -hmm. Lead was once used for all kinds of things because we thought it was this miracle. That thing was consumed, actually, um, by the Chinese and in, in, in ancient cultures. Um, used as medicine. Today, it's, it's banned because we know it's poisonous. We have evolved that far. We've done enough studies to realize that it is dangerous, particularly to children. So that's a that's a really good thing that that we've done in the, this, uh, the, this these evolving studies that resulted in you know I think regulation that that makes a lot of sense. But I think the problem we have here is that we see one 
either fraction of a scientific study or one scientific study that comes out with this sensational finding. And we jump to these conclusions that, oh, this substance has to be banned or this, you know, we jump to huge conclusions before seeking out all the facts, the totality of evidence. You know, I, I want to, you've mentioned some of the things that are, are problematic within the scientific community. Um, and I, and, you know, about studies not being, not having good methodology, maybe the numbers, maybe it hasn't been peer reviewed. But there's another problem, and this is a actually pretty serious problem that a lot of people don't know about, is this issue of predatory journals, where a, an activist scientist, and these are largely used by activist scientists, but they're also used by people who just sort of need to be published. And, um, and so they might be well-meaning. I don't want to, I don't want to put everybody in this bucket of bad people, um, because they use these journals, but there are journals. Well, I shouldn't answer the question. Tell us what a predatory journal is. Well, it, the pressure to publish, if you're a scientist, the pressure to publish is enormous. That's how you attract attention to yourself, right. build up your credibility and attract additional resources to do more funding. Right. Um, there's a lot of journals out there that will there that are um, I guess you'd call them pay for play yeah. type of, uh, yeah. of, of journals. They will print anything. They'll print anything, and and the, the unfortunately, what they want to print is the more sensational exactly. type of study. They don't want to print a study that well we studied this and there was we found that the, the connection wasn't there. No, right. they want to publish something that either says we studied this, you know little known vegetable grown in one small island in the East Indies, and it makes you live to 100. Or we found that there's link uh, to something, uh, there's an association that uh, it gives you cancer, the latest, the, the, the phthalates issue that, you know, it's reducing yeah. semen counts and we're going to, the whole population is going to go away in a matter of right. Um So there's this, there's this pressure to, to publish positive findings even if they're poorly done. And the other big issue is that they're not replicated. If you do a scientific study and you don't share all the data so that other scientists can do the same study and, and replicate your results, well, that's a big grain of salt that, that, that you've got to look at that study and, and read that with. If it hasn't been replicated, and and some of these journals are even worse than that. There is a case of there's a, a science show that submitted the script for the show to one of these journals and they printed it. They printed it as a they gave the script a nice title that sounded scientific and put, you know, made it seem the right way. And so they just they printed it. And this was the featured on a television show about the corruption of science. So this really is a big deal. And if you are an activist scientist who wants to get across and and then you want to use the word well or the media to use the latest study says, which is, you know, always the line that's used. I also find that these activist scientists, they their vehicle might be the predatory journal but they also target really vulnerable populations. For instance, the parents of autistic children, you know, and you see that a lot with some of the chemical, um, anti-chemical activists and scientists who, um, they seem to pick a condition that might have with it, that comes with it a large advocacy group and promote the idea that this particular thing contributes to autism. Of course, they don't mention that you know the aut the 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 field the medical field of autism is is a very complicated field and and you really need to have a very large conversation about that issue before you talk about these things 
And so that's another thing is that getting these particular types of, of vulnerable groups and activist organizations sort of behind the bad science is another tactic that you know I think is particularly monstrous, but it's very effective. It's a very smart way to get your your oh, up, up front. You, you, Wait, what's, what go ahead, you, Jennifer, I'm sorry. Well, what do you think their objective is? I mean, some people with watching this might say, you know, why would somebody want to do that? What 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 is why would they want to scare moms or right? And so they they would say, well, that's not really happening. Nobody wants to go out into the world and just terrify mothers about vaccines or what have you. But 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 you argue that they do. And so I'm, you know, just try to explain to people why that might be. It's in my opinion, um, it's a page out of the um, mass trial, mass tort trial attorney's playbook. Fear is a fear is a powerful motivator. Um, you know, if, if the, the, there is a there is a very well scripted um, playbook, if you will, to to for a mass tort attorney looking for the next big thing. You know, you have to find a a chemical or a compound or something that that is uh, pervasive in the community that a lot of people use. It's in a product that, that's widely used. Ideally, that product is made by a, a deep pop, deep pocketed manufacturer. Um, then you either find or, in some cases, fund a study that shows an association between uh, this product, substance, and a, and a bad health outcome. From there, you can use the media, you can use mass marketing, as we've all seen on, if you watch TV after 11 o'clock at night or during the day, um, you know, hey, have you ever, have you ever taken this pill? Then you are entitled to compensation. Uh, there, the, you can peddle this fear, recruit a whole bunch of plaintiffs, and in fact, uh, and professional people don't realize that, you know, these trial lawyers have conferences and they go to these events and they talk about just the issues that you raised. What's going to be our next big thing? And, you know, they, they had this big conference where they decided, well, we're going to go after, you know, we're going to go after ExxonMobil for climate change. And they plot their strategy and they, you know, they issue their reports. We're going to go after big pharma or big tobacco or big, you know, big food. But, you know, we're going to go after McDonald's. And they, they literally have conferences where they gather, you know, to plot strategy. And it, I mean, I, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but anybody who gets online and Googles this can find out that this is what they do. It's a, it's a, look, it's a very profitable business model. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it just is. And it, and the, the tactics that they use um, are perfectly legal under the current system. And, it, you know, it, it borderline, it, it, the, the forcing corporations to, to settle um, or face endless lawsuits. I mean, that is a, that is a scheme that would make Tony Soprano envious. You know, because um, it's all perfectly legal. But right. it's, there's also, you know, there's um, on the law side, but on the science side, if you get a lot of headlines in the media, you know, there is, you get invited to conferences to speak on this. You go on the news programs and comment on this. Um, I think there's some, 
I think it's lucrative on that side as well, you know, and you might get funded for additional studies. I love how at the end of studies, it usually says something like more studies are required to, you know, which is like, you know, more money, we need more money. And so there's, it's lucrative, not just in the, in the courts, it's lucrative to the actual scientist who right. might want to be seen as an expert in this area. And again, Joe, you said earlier, you know, they're not, the, the the studies that say everything seems good here not it's not making a, it's not making the daily mail right, for sure right. yeah. yeah well and it's interesting I mean from the media side um, you know it's it's they enable it because those sensational stories provide clicks and they sure. Sure. right and so it's profitable everybody for wins well. except the consumer right and it's really a tri an evil trifecta of media scientists and and plaintiff attorneys who are so yeah spreading this fear throughout our society. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about science in the courtroom and what some of these cases look like. I mean, you have these, you know, mass tort, um, you know, type of things. We, you met, we mentioned a few of them against Big Tobacco, you know, was, was probably the first. Um, and then on to Big Pharma, Big Oil, all the other stuff. Um, how, to explain briefly how that works, um, once they file a case and once a case is before a judge, how do attorneys go about attempting to prove that the, you know, the, the corporations, the evil corporations that they're suing, um, actually created a product that caused cancer or the harm that they, that they claim it caused? What type of proof do they need? Well, let's take the, let's take the roundup case um uh, because this is there's decisions on both sides of this that just make me scratch my head um so roundup weed killer uh the 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 most popular uh, weed killer ever sold been used for years uh there are something like 17 uh government uh studies that uh verified that that is not a carcinogen uh, but there is one now discredited study uh, by the IARC, which is a, a division of the uh, World Health Organization, uh, that was funded, I believe, by the trial bar, uh, that found that there there was an association with cancer. Um, in the in those cases, after recruiting thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of of uh, plaintiffs, um, the the trial attorneys picked the the most sympathetic one, the best possible case to bring to court, not representing 100,000, just that one. Um, one sympathetic person. The yeah. sympathetic person in their strongest case, uh, they present it to a jury. Um, and, you know, we, we tend to um, believe and 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 want to embrace emotional arguments right. and, and and if we have if there's a strong emotional argument we'll set aside the facts right um and and these look these attorneys are very skilled and they they wove a very emotional uh, argument about uh this uh, one he's a golf course superintendent in northern california uh the jury came back with a uh multi-billion, I think, uh, uh, oh, yeah. verdict since reduced, but still just, uh, you know, off the, off the charts verdict. Then the, what the, the, the attorneys do is they go to the company and said, look, we got a hundred thousand more of these. Right. Now we know, we know what the science says. Um, but you, you've just lost this one. 
So it would be easier for you just to settle up now. We'll take our 40% plus expenses. But let's, let's take it back a bit to before the verdict. Before the verdict, um, these attorneys, they can't just present whatever evidence they want to the jury. Um, under, under our system, we have what's called a, a Daubert standard. Right. I said I wasn't going to use legalese, but there it is. <laughs> um, what that basically means is that the, you know, the judge has to determine ahead of time whether or not the evidence is credible enough to even let the jury hear it. They can't put on, you know, Dr. Julie Gunlock with her PhD and, you know, magic to talk about something, mm -hmm. right? They, they have to have an actual expert and they have to have actual studies. How, how, why is it that judges aren't more careful in their Daubert analysis um, in, in terms of letting some of these studies get through to the jury? In my opinion, it's because most judges have little or no scientific training. Not, they're, you know, they're poli-sci poli majors, they're history majors, they're whatever majors they were in college and they went to law school, but they're not chemists or toxicologists or epidemiologists. Um, and, but th they also have unique authority over what gets in their courtroom. And if they, uh, attorneys can make a compelling enough case that this is a credible evidence, it gets allowed in. In some course, in, in some cases, it doesn't. What, here's what I don't understand about the, the, the roundup decision is that the one judge in, in San Francisco uh, you know, awards, presides over a case that awards this huge damage award. Um, another judge also in San Francisco and California, the home of Prop 65, right. where you have to have warning labels on everything, everything. including, including like the salmon you order at a restaurant. Yes. That, the, you know, the menus have warning labels. Oh my, everything has a warning. Yes. Label. Might have mercury in it or what. Yeah. But another judge says uh, Roundup does not have to have a warning label because we have all these studies that prove it's not carcinogenic. So how in the world, how in the world can one judge preside over a case where this massive award is made and resulting in this even more massive settlement, um, yet I can still go buy Roundup, uh, as I did last weekend, because I've got some yard work to do this week, uh, while another judge says there's not enough evidence here to even put a Prop 65 warning and, on. And Joe, I wonder which one generated more headlines. <laughs> oh, I wonder. Yeah, easy. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a report out on this, and I want to, I want to put this up um, and read a quote from your report. Uh, you say seventy-nine percent of Americans believe that independent scientists appointed by a judge would be the most qualified to determine the validity of scientific claims as they relate to potential awards in mass tort cases. In other words, the vast majority of people think that rather than letting the judge make the decision him or herself, that the judge should appoint um, a scientist or a panel of scientists um, to make that decision. How likely are we to see re legal reforms that would accomplish that? Well, this is certainly one way to attack the issue, and it's not like it hasn't been done before. Judges have appointed these independent um, scientific panels 
Um, I believe the, the most significant ones were in uh, a decade or so back in the, uh, the silicon uh, breast implant uh, cases. Uh, they appointed independent scientific panels to, to, to judge the evidence on that for admissibility. Um, judges are very proud people. They uh, don't like to relinquish control of their courtrooms. Um, so that's very well, I know all about that. I'm, re <laughs> I'm related to a few and friends with me. <laughs> so, so it's going to, I think voluntarily, it's going to be very difficult, but uh, perhaps through greater uh, judicial education, um, whether it's the uh, education of existing judges on a continuing education basis, whether it's a part of a law school curriculum, um, whether we can uh, sort establish some sort of guidelines that the uh, even if it's not mandated, guideline that in certain cases uh, uh, a judge would would call in or appoint an independent scientific panel, and uh, both sides have to agree to it. It was proposed in in the. Uh, in the roundup settlement that to settle future cases, we have the scientific panel, the judge refu refused to do it. I mean, it's it's so commonsensical. The, the consumers came up with that idea on their own. We were having these these uh, uh, this consumer research focus group discussions and we said, well, how do you think we can improve this? Because they inherently knew it wasn't fair and they knew that they themselves weren't qualified <laughs> to make a decision in a scientific case. So they started on their own having this discussion. Why not independent scientific panels? Well, I think that's a brilliant idea. Right. It's, it's so commonsensical uh, that why we don't do it is beyond me. So before I forget, because um, I, I want to make sure that people know where they can find a copy of this report, tell us your website and, and um where people can download, uh, you know, a full copy of the report. Truthinscience.org. Truthinscience.org. Okay. Um, and is it under any particular tab or topic there? Um, I believe if you go to the to the uh, uh, the homepage, uh, you will be able to to find most everything. We do a we do a blog and a lot of commentary. That's called the intersection. Um, that's a good place to start looking. Great links to different studies. Um, our new, you can subscribe to our newsletter in which we, uh, uh, a new feature of our newsletters, we take a, a recent scientific study and we, we put it through what we term our grain of salt test. Uh, we have right. nine questions that we ask of ourselves or ask of these studies and, and even the best studies, even the, even the, 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 the most uh, soundly completed studies always have a little question mark. And we give higher marks to studies where the scientists themselves say, this is a gap we, we, we haven't been able to fill in, in this uh, uh, research. When they, by their own admission, say, this is not the be all and end all uh, of, uh, of results on this topic. You know, Jennifer, I don't wanna, I don't wanna go away from the law issue yet. So, um, you know, interrupt me or we can come we can come back to this, but I do want to get your opinion Wait, on, oh, go ahead. Well, if you're moving away from the law issue before we do, I just want to commend one other piece of work, which is our own. Um, and this is a legal policy document put out by the Independent Women's Law Center, um, which deals with uh, expert testimony in American courtrooms. And it just kind of breaks it down into uh, what the issues are at these trials, why juries get confused sometimes 
and it makes some recommendations about how trial judges um, should handle sort of the battle of competing experts. So if anybody's interested in that, they can pick that up at IWF.org. Love the title, by the way. <laughs> and it's the title of this the broadcast. We're well. both 80s girls, so that, yeah, yeah you can probably tell. Love, love the title. Actually, <laughs> but this might be a good time before we move on to what Julie was going to say to talk a little bit about what happens when we do get misled by bad science. I couldn't resist. <laughs> it reminds me of how good videos used to be, right? I know, oh, right? Great. Back when MTV actually played music videos. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, so I'm sorry. I interrupted you, and I distracted us all with Thomas Dolby. So you go. <laughs> No, it's, it's, I don't, I, again, I don't want to, um, we, you know, we can come back to the, the legal issue. And frankly, I don't think this, this gets away from it, really, because I wanted to get Joe's opinion on sort of how science has been used, the phrase follow science, we touched on this earlier, um, with all the COVID stuff going on. And, you know, as a mom, I'm very concerned about that phrase, follow the science, to shut down any kind of consent or dissent or even skepticism. You know, I, I spoke with I've spoken with scientists who've told me, you know, skepticism is good. It's healthy. It's it's actually part of the scientific method, right? You you need to be sort of skeptical of results, and then you do further testing. Um, so you know, I you know, and I don't want this to get into sort of let's bash you know particular people or, but I do want to get your opinion on this and and how you think public health did. How do you think the scientific community did during COVID? Well, I'll tell you, um, skepticism is or should be an integral part of yeah. any scientific experiment. Um, if you go in with a preordained outcome, that ain't science. Right. <laughs> You're testing things to see and, and, and doubting. Um, so, you know, I think we were confronted with, uh, with a remarkable and never before faced uh, challenge um, I, I think there were many, many um, unknowns uh, that uh, science had to evolve uh, as we learned about the, the seriousness of the disease, who it affects most, um, who it affects least, um, how we deal with it, the effectiveness of masks, um, and, and more and more information is coming out on that that, frankly, is a little disturbing. Um, and uh, the... Uh, uh, effectiveness of potential treatments, you know, hydroxychloroquine and things like that. Uh, there was just kind of uh, crazy uh, uh, theories uh, floated. Um, where I think the scientific community came through in and and really 
we're fortunate to live in the country we live in uh, because we're leading the way on this was recognizing the importance of developing a vaccine um, or multiple vaccines, using the new technology to, to advance these vaccines, being able to take a risk and these innovative, that's a huge issue. If we're not afraid to take those, if we are afraid to take those risks, we're gonna be you know, wearing masks and social distancing forever uh, and be confused and be distrustful of, of uh, science, of government and of each other. That's yeah. a dangerous, dangerous mm -hmm. place to be. Um, so the scientific community, <laughs> the scientific effort to develop vaccines and get them in people's arms. If you look just across the border at our northern neighbors, I'm talking to a Canadian friend of mine just last week who said, look, we're just being allowed to play golf up here. Mm -hmm. It has been the gong show, his turn, the gong show uh, in, in, in rolling this out com compared to you guys. We should have a clip of that. I know. <laughs> if you would only told me ahead of time. It's actually perfect imagery. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I really, and you know, I feel as, as a mom with kids still in school and and I live in um, I live in an area where people are, are are sort of believe in a zero risk world post COVID. They sort of think that there needs to be zero. I'm not I'm not talking zero infections and hospitalizations in the town. I'm talking nationwide. They want yes. it. And I'm you know I'm looking at the fall now. My kids have been home for 17 months, right? I'm actually only 25. I just look this old because <laughs> I've been home so long. Um, and, you know, I'm looking at in the fall, my kids going to school still requiring a mask with fully vaccinated teachers. And so I think that this, I worry about this, about this refusal to really look at the facts, this inability to take even like a 0.000014% chance of infection seems, and making the entire population behave in a way that I think is in opposition to the science is, is troubling. I think we, I think if we're armed with accurate information, we all have the capability to be very good risk managers for ourselves. Yes. Um, I come from a 35 year career uh, in the insurance industry. I, I know a little bit about risk assessment and risk management and weighing costs and benefits. And I think those choices, the government has a role, no question about it, to, mm -hmm. pro, uh, to provide um, uh, information and recommendations. Uh, but when it comes to this, this uh, the notion of a risk-free life is a fantasy. We t take risks every day and we manage them. How many people die in car accidents every year? But does that deter you from getting in your car and dri driving someplace? It it it, right. it doesn't. But but you can, you know, you can manage you that from you know insurance risk management perspective. I come at it you know from a lawyer's perspective. I understand risk. Other people, you know, from an economics perspective, they understand weighing costs and benefits. Not everybody, you know, comes at these issues from those perspectives and. What do you say to somebody who just doesn't view the world that way? They want a guarantee that the world is going to be safe for them and their children. And maybe your risk tolerance is higher, but they don't, you know, they want the policies to reflect the lowest common denominator of risk tolerance, which is them. I, 
Jennifer, I wish I had an answer to that question. Um, I have I have friends who who feel that way, and and we argue in a in a in a non angry way uh, about it. What the proper role of the government is, and and what the proper role of self responsibility is. And at the end of the day, we we end up agreeing to disagree. Uh, but but you know, there's I don't think there's a I don't think it's feasible to create uh, a government oversight, kind of a nanny state, cradle to grave, that's going to take care of us and and make us all happy and risk free. I just I just don't think that. And and what do we lose if we have that? I, Nick, here's a, a sort of political cultural question for you both. Do you think that all of this made people coming out of COVID? Uh, made people more risk averse or less risk averse? I mean, do you do you see people saying enough is enough? This is ridiculous. Um, or do you see people being more fearful than they were pre-pandemic? Not just of the pandemic, but of life itself. I, I, honestly, I see both. The, the people I mostly associate with are like, let's take the masks off and let's get back at it. Uh, but there are plenty of people um, that are still going to the grocery store and driving in their cars and whatnot with with masks. And cars, those people are killing. Oh, yeah. Well, I always I always try to remember some Uber drivers probably because I, I literally I'm trying to be kind because I see people in my town constantly driving around with masks and I try to think, oh, they're just on their way to get someone for an Uber. That's the only way I can right. get to it. Not right. what is wrong with you? So. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that it's made people sort of more firm in their beliefs before this happened. So if you were sort of a naturally cautious person, then you're going to, I think you're even probably more cautious now, more nervous now. And then on the opposite side, if you're, if you were sort of, if you're willing to take the risk, I think also there is a segment of the population that's really smart about this. They say, you know, I'm a young person. I'm very healthy. I'm at a normal weight. I, you know, all the sort of risks that put you at, you know, at a higher risk really for getting very sick from COVID, you know, those people are really smart about it. They look at their situation and they look at the risks involved and then they make a decision. I do think there are people like that. I wish there were more, but I, those people kind of give me hope. Um, you know, I know people who had some vulnerabilities and they they decided to really stay home and really be careful and they're still masking, but they understand that other people don't have their health problems. And so I, I those people really give me hope. And I think there's more of those than, than we think. I think it's the, the key part of that to me is that they are making their own decisions. Yes. They're yes. they are managing their own risks yes. based on on the best information available. And and to me, that's the way it should be. Yes. The problem is, though, that sometimes, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right, both in life and in politics. And the ones that are going to the policymakers and saying, you know, we need all of the kindergartners to be masked this fall, right, the people that are, that are writing to their superintendents and the people that are writing to their policymakers, state policymakers, are the ones who are most fearful, for the most part. I, I don't see um, a, a groundswell of activism on the other side. Yeah, because they're too busy doing things. <laughs> Living again through the day. Playing golf. <laughs> yeah, it's, and this, of course, this whole safety culture boils into so many other facets of life. It's 
not just with respect to, to scientific risk. Um, you know, we see it on our college campuses. People want protection from having their feelings hurt and all sorts of other things. Um, and that, of course, reminds me of another amazing song from the 80s, which is, of course, the safety dance. I'm going to up a little piece of that. This is actually a really great clip um, that came from, uh, it came from the Glee, I think, from the TV show Glee. But it's a sort of a montage. Here you go. Awesome. How great is that? <laughs> well, I think on that note, we'll wind up. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Julie. And thank you, Joe, for joining us and telling us more about the Center for Truth in Science. Um, I hope everybody checks Joe out on Twitter. Um, what is your what is your Twitter handle? Can you tell everybody? Oh, I wish I knew and I don't off the top of my head. <laughs> we have it somewhere. Uh, well, I'm going to find it. Well, Joe, you're at. Um, well, the cent the center has one for sure. Yeah, the center. Hold on, the center for. Oh, oh, here we go. Um, it is at Truth Science CTR. So Truth Science CTR, and Joe is at Joseph Anotti. A N N O T T I. You can pay me later. There we go. And you can follow Julie and me on Twitter. And you can follow IWF at IWF as well. So thank you again for tuning in and joining us at the bar. Um, at the bar is a project of the Independent Women's Forum. And we'll be back in two weeks on July 15th. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>